Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today is Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on the very word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite documentaries is a documentary that that came out over 10 years ago called Man on Wire. Has anyone seen it? It's like... It's one of the best documentaries. I love it so much. It follows this bizarre character named Philippe Petit. I think that's the most French name you can have. And he was a man from France. He was a juggler. He was a magician, unicyclist, and most famously, he was a tightrope walker. He became um, really fascinated with this idea of like continually pushing himself to, to do more and more extreme things to wake up people in life, that they would experience something that would inspire uh, the sense of, uh, of hope for life, the enjoyment of life and the delight of life. And so um, he uh, began to take this love of tightrope walking and then he would, um, without asking for permission, start doing it in public places. So like at, um, in Notre Dame, he, would, he strung this wire between the, the towers, the two of the towers, and one day he walked across, and this crowd gathered around him. Um, that was until one day he was at the dentist's office, and he saw the drawing of some buildings that were being constructed in New York City called the Twin Towers. And he began to look at this drawing of these buildings that were going to be, and he felt this strong desire towards this feeling that his destiny was tied to tightrope walking across the very top of those twin towers. And that became an obsession for Philippe for a while until on that day, on August 7th, 1974, after months of preparing, Petit and his friends somehow snuck to the top of the World Trade Center disguised as construction workers, and Petit stepped out from the building onto this wire 1,300 feet over the sidewalk, and he decided to walk across, walking across the tightrope. Not only did he do so, but he spent over 45 minutes on that tightrope, walking across at least eight different times. Can you imagine the spectacle that happened when people started to notice this man seemingly walking on air above everyone? One of my favorite things about the documentary, though, is is that it turns about halfway in the documentary to kind of feel like a, more of like a heist movie because, of course, they didn't ask for permission to do this. So it, was this, it began this, this question of how in the world are we going to find a way to get to the top of this tower, to string a wire across, to make this thing happen? And one of the most difficult things that he began to figure out was how do we actually get the wire across? How would you do that? And so they threw out a bunch of different ideas. The idea that, that, that they landed on was to have a bow and arrow. 
and shoot the arrow from one tower over to the other. And on the end of that arrow would be a string. And so the arrow went over. They got that string and started pulling it over this chasm. And on that string was tied a thicker string and then a rope and then this heavy metal cable. For me, the concept of that picture has been in my mind as we have gone through this series on habits. Because obviously many of us in life, we feel stuck. We're kind of on the top of a tower, and we see over, but we don't know how we can get unstuck, how we can move from here to go over there. And this idea of these practices, these spiritual practices, are, are as if when we practice something, we begin to pull this light string over so that eventually we can pull a heavier cable and a heavier cable so that eventually after these practices become more habits in our life, after we have embodied them over an amount of time, then we can actually move over from being a person into a, a transformed, renewed person, someone who's experiencing change. That's why we've identified these eight different habits as we've looked at the life of Jesus. If you guys haven't been around, these are the different habits that we're going to embody as a church for the next season of our life. Four daily habits and four weekly habits. We've talked about the habit of prayerful reflection three times a day, a reading of scripture, speaking blessing to people, lifting others in prayer daily. We've talked around the weekly habits of having an hour, one hour a week where we're looking at people eyeball to eyeball and we are encouraging each other, challenging each other, loving each other. A weekly practice of embodying mercy in the margin, the weekly habit. Uh, habit of Sabbath, and we are finally to this last habit and the last message in this series around this weekly practice of fasting. I think there's fewer spiritual practices that are more neglected or misunderstood or abused than this idea of fasting. Um, fasting is something that many of us, we just push off in part because we live in Austin and in Austin, we love our food, right? Like, this is like a headquarters for foodies. I mean, people travel to Austin to eat our food. I know some of you are like, no, I'm not a foodie, but you are a food snob. I know y'all. You guys, like, when was the last time you went to TGIF? When was the last time you had put an awesome blossom in your mouth? Probably it's been a while, and you probably even judge me for using that. I mean, we drive by on South Lamar, Red Lobster, and we wonder, how is that still there? Answer is cheddar biscuits, of course. Of course it's still open. <laughs> but, you know, for us, we love our, our food. This is um, why we wait in line for hours at Franklin, why we talk about the next sushi pop-up location. This is why we over, uh, overpay for small plates of food and we take pictures of these plates because we know we just wasted a lot of money on them and we want it to last a little longer. Um, this habit of fasting goes in direct contrast to the overindulgent, the instant gratification, the food-obsessed culture that we live in. And the only way we hear about fasting is honestly Intermittent fasting, which is becoming more and more of a commonplace. But this is about something different. Even though fasting has been often neglected, it's been a part 
of the normal, like the Christian life for, for decades. Even in Jesus' time, all good Jews and 100% of the Pharisees, they all fasted twice a week. They practiced this fasting. Even in the early church, when the early church was formed, they continued that practice of fasting two days a week. They just shifted days to kind of like stand out independent from the Jewish practices. And so we find that like that was just commonplace. That was just a part of the Christian life was this, this habit of fasting. What about Jesus? Well, in Jesus' central teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus lifts up three different practices in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, he talks about three different practices. Some scholars would say these are the three central spiritual practices that Jesus sought for his followers here and to, to practice in their own life. And any guess what they are? They were prayer, giving to the poor, and yes, fasting. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He gave this instruction. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you that they have received the reward in full. It's kind of a warning against like being showy in fasting. Like don't, like if you're gonna make this about like you carrying a huge jug of water around, the, around with you all day long, if you're gonna make yourself look emaciated, then that's, you got your reward. But there's a different kind of reward. But the thing that I find interesting is the way that starts off. When you fast, Jesus says. Not if you fast. <laughs> but it was like almost assumable that the followers of Jesus would be people who would have this practice of fasting. For those who don't like being told what to do, for those who like, like, don't like that kind of authority, you just need to know that Jesus never commanded it. Like, it was never an instruction like, you must do this. But I find that fasting could be a wonderful practice for a culture, especially like ours. It's probably an invitation to escape this kingdom of materialism, overconsumption, where food is just assumable. That's just a part of our life. Fasting might be a perfect practice for a community like ours. So let us consider what's underneath this central habit of fasting. Why is this a part of the way of Jesus? Well, to get a picture of this, let's wind the reel all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and in the Garden of Eden. The beginning of the Bible starts off with a story about humanity being with God in a garden where everything was well, everything was good, and even and in the, in the rhythm of, of creation, God creates and blesses. God creates and blesses. And with humanity being created, God says, oh, this is so good. The creation of humanity is that of blessing, of being with God. But then the tempter comes, and the tempter begins to sow seeds of doubt. In the story of creation in Genesis 3, the tempter comes to humanity and says, did God really say did God really say, like, in just that little bit of a question began to sow seeds of doubt. And seeds of doubt would bear fruit in seeds of distrust, and distrust would ultimately lead towards rebellion. Um, and everything fell apart from that. What I hadn't realized until recently, I haven't really put my mind around, my, my mind around it, was the role in which food played 
in that moment. Now, what was the serpent trying to get Adam and Eve to do? Well, to eat the fruit, yes. But food is not necessarily bad. There's something underneath that, uh, that temptation. Adam and Eve eating of the fruit was revealing something beneath the surface. And the deeper temptation was to not trust God. Did God really say you shouldn't eat this fruit? Maybe it's because if you ate this, then you would actually know just as much as God would know. You would know. And that turning to food was a turning away from a trusting posture towards God. That's the deeper temptation, to take matters into their own hands and in doing so to turn to this food. A saint in the early tradition, Ignatius, would define sin as this. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It's an interesting concept that all of sin is actually the struggle with believing that God wants for me The only thing God wants for me is my deepest sense of happiness. When we distrust in that, that God's posture towards towards us, that of generosity, of love, of care, then we can turn to all sorts of sin. It seems like that lesson of trust permeates Scripture and it permeates our life with God. It permeates our lives as well. Am I willing to trust that God wants the best for me, that God knows my needs, that God is a good provider. Um, That seems to be the primary lesson that we find in our lives. With this in mind, I find it fascinating how Jesus' story begins very similarly to that of Genesis chapter 3. When Jesus steps on to to the scene, this is after 30 years of him living um, in secret. We don't know anything about those hidden years of Jesus. For 30 years, we find Christ living in obscurity. By the way, that's probably none of our ideas of the best use of the Savior's time in this world, right? 30 years of obscurity, three years of actual like ministry in the public sphere, but that's how it is with God. I think in part, maybe that was a posture of trust, trusting that these last three years would be enough. So For 30 years, we don't know anything about what Christ was doing, but then Jesus emerges on the scene, and two things take place. They were, um, Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John, and with his hair still wet from that baptism, uh, after hearing not only John's words, but God the Father's words speak a blessing over Jesus, we find that Jesus um, had to do something else. This is Matthew chapter 4, the scripture reading we heard earlier Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do we see the many different echoes that we find here in this scene as we did in Genesis chapter 3? What are some of them? This is a, we'll have a little all play question. What are some of the the similarities, the parallels, the echoes? What's that? The tempter was present.
food. Yeah, so there's not only just a, the tempter, but the temptation around food. Yep. So the tempter in, in the garden, did God really say in here, if you are the son of God? Similarity is that they're also sowing seeds of what? Doubt, distrust. And I, by the way, I don't feel like doubt's a sin. I think doubt, when we journey through doubt with community and with God, it's actually can be a beautiful thing. But just taking these questions on their own led to a tragic thing, right? Did in Genesis. But not so here with Jesus. With Jesus, we find a different way. The temptation in after 40 days of fasting, I love that scripture feels the necessary point to say that Jesus was hungry after 40 days. Got it. Yeah, you could have skipped that, right? After 40 days, he was hungry. Um, but for this, he, he had this interaction with the tempter. If you are the son of God, questioning the words that was spoken over Jesus at the baptism, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And the enemy comes and says, but if you really are, if you really are, why don't you just go ahead and turn stone to bread? Why don't you turn from a, a dependence upon God and actually take control, provide for yourself? What Adam and Eve didn't do, though, Jesus does. And Jesus answered that temptation by saying, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we see here what Paul and what other writers refer to as Jesus being a second Adam. In the first experience of Adam and Eve, all things fell apart. But so in Jesus, all things are being restored. And what we see here with Jesus is that Jesus reveals like this power in the midst of his emptiness, in the midst of his fasting. He embodies this power and his superpower seems to be this abandonment, this absolute trust that the Father loves me and wants my greatest happiness, that God's going to pr provide for me, that Jesus, he shows us that there's a strength on being completely dependent upon God. It's still shocking to me that out of everything, why in the world would Jesus spend these first 40 days of his public ministry in the wilderness? I mean, hasn't he waited long enough? <laughs> Come on, the time is ticking. The clock is ticking. Let's go. Let's get to work. But Jesus initiates his public work by doing a private act of fasting. And what's happening while Jesus was fasting? Well, it's, it wasn't just that Jesus was practicing self-denial. What we find here in, in his response to the tempter is it's not just about experiencing emptiness. It's actually about feasting on God's word. Man shall not live on bread alone, but the very word of God. In the midst of his emptiness, he was actually feasting on God's word. He was enjoying God's word. Jesus is showing that the denial of our desires can remind us that we have a different kind of provision. We say no to one kind of hunger so that we can remember that we have a deeper hunger. It's to break free from a kingdom that's built upon consumption, 
materialism, self-provision, so that we can remember the sweetness in trusting on Christ and God. I heard a pastor from Portland, John Mark Homer, he once said, our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. Our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. I might really, really want that P. Terry's burger or the brand new iPhone that has one more lens on the back distinguishing how new it is. Or I might want to just take whatever I want in life. Those are all desires that sometimes feel really strong. But I also have deeper desires that seem more subtle. They're like much more vast, but they're more subtly felt. And what are those deeper desires? I'm sure there are desires like you have. I want to live with like fewer regrets. Like I want to, I want to be a, someone who has like this a deep connection to God. I want to be a person who has like deep connections with other people. I want to be a person who's bringing peace where there's conflict and when there's people who are hungry for mercy to just be a part of what God's doing and bringing that mercy in the world. You know, it's, those are desires that are deeply rooted in me, but oftentimes the bigger ones beat it out. And as a follower of Jesus, I think that our, the practice of fasting is getting in touch with those deeper desires and claiming them to be truer than what we might often feel that is strongest in our life. So much of our lives are driven by what psychologists call the pleasure principle. Our lives are driven by what feels good in the temporal sense without concern for any long-term, satisfying our surface-level cravings while neglecting our souls. That just seems to be the way of our world, the way of our time. I think this will always be difficult but, uh, for humanity, but especially for a society like ours that's just built around consumerism and built around materialism. Um, we have so many messages coming at us that life is really about finding pleasure while it's here. This is why it's so uncommon for us to simply sit with emptiness, with longing, with hunger, without looking for an easy fix. I remember in college, I, a friend of mine asked me to fast with him. It was my first time ever to fast. I never fasted before that. And I decided to give it a try. Um, and I was expecting it to be a day of like prayer, like the sacred experience where I just feel really connected to God. I was hangry all day long. Just by the fact I knew I wasn't going to eat that day, I, went, I obsessed over food. I would often skip breakfast but that morning, like, I really, really wanted to walk to Sabisa at Texas A&M and eat a huge breakfast. Yet, I went throughout that day and uh, without eating, and I began to realize that food is everywhere. <laughs> you, you don't realize it until you're hungry that, oh, there's, there's food everywhere. Every, you know, like classes or organizations I would go to or people who, like, not finish their plate of food and just throw it away. I would just stare at it, you know, like, are you sure? Uh, by the end of the day, I was going to visit a friend of mine's uh, house. I was driving on Texas Avenue, and I remember driving and seeing a jack-in-the-box. And without even consciously making the decision, I found my car turning in and going in through the drive-thru. Guys, I, like, 
don't like Jack in the Box. Like, you know how many times I've eaten at Jack in the Box in my life? Once, that night, and it was incredible. Like, the sourdough burger was unbelievable. But I was, I remember being in line just laughing that I can't do it. Like, I, I couldn't do it. Like, my body, like, kicked my brain out and said, we'll take it from here. We're going to go eat. Uh, and it just made me think of how much of my life is driven to satisfy my own wants. Again, like, it's not a bad thing to enjoy food. But when, when it takes over, when it's, like, the driving force in our life, not only that desire, but our other desires, we, need, we just need to realize that sometimes that leads us to directions that we don't want to go. Richard Foster, he's an author, he said this quote, that fasting reveals what controls us, what controls you. That experience made me realize how my desires can drive my car as well as my life. Living centered on pleasure and misguided desires This is what Paul calls the flesh. When you find in Paul's writings, this is after the time of Jesus, he calls this the flesh. It's when our lives become reoriented around me getting what I want when I want it. It's like what happens when our desires are misdirected to solely serve the self without consideration of long-term effects or how it affects other people. When our lives are driven by our self-serving desires, this wreaks havoc in our souls as well as in this world. This is why Paul would say in Galatians 6, 8, whoever sows to, ple- uh, to please the flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. So fasting is a way that we remember that we have a soul. It's where we remember that there's more to us than the appetites we have. It's where we actually have a soul that's been created to know God and to feast on God's presence. This type of living is sowing seeds that please the Spirit. It's found in living in a posture of dependence and trust on God. So uh, in this series, this habit series, we have sought to be very practical on each of these, uh, on these habits that we've been talking through. And especially today as as Fasting is something that we rarely do, or we rarely talk about, it seems. I uh, wanted to leave just with a couple practicals for us if, if we explore this habit in our lives. First off, just the same way with all of the eight other practices that we have, we have written tools for each of these on our church's website. So if you don't know where to start, we have an introduction tool. We have uh, tools that can help you explore what it's like to fast so that you're not just on your own. We have written uh, material for you, and as well as all, the, uh, all of the eight practices. But the fruits of practicing a fast, is they're built around intention, Intention. So before we're fasting, we are intentional. So before we do that, first off, decide how you will fast. Some people, they might fast from a meal, so they'll skip lunch, and that's how they fast. Other people, it's from sun up to sundown. Um, um, for other people, it's a 24-hour long fast. Honestly, for our society, I think that fasting from other things is a really, really healthy practice because Our appetites are not only for food, but they're also for our addiction to entertainment, our phones, our social media. Like to actually have a digital fast might be as difficult (laughs) as fasting from food. But for us, before we enter into a fast, we're intentional about how long are we doing that, 
What are we doing it through and with? Um, And then secondly, for us, it's not only about deciding how you will fast, but it's also identifying the purpose of the fast. The point is not merely to feel emptiness, but it's to redirect your hunger to something greater. So just as Jesus said when the tempter came to him uh, around turning the stone into bread, Jesus said, I'm saying no to this because it's not on bread alone that people are living, but the very word of God. So Jesus was redirecting his hunger towards enjoying and delighting in God's word. So before fasting, it's really, really important for us to identify a purpose. People usually fast to experience deeper prayer. That's one reason why people fast. Or to, to, to put your intention around a spiritual breakthrough. Or to stand in solidarity with the poor or the marginalized. Sometimes people will enter a fast to lift up a burden that someone else is carrying. And so oftentimes, that's the purpose of the fast. And then the third thing that I would say is to consider fasting with other people. Fasting in community can be a powerful thing, in part because you don't get, you know, you won't have to watch people eat around you. Let's do it together, guys, right? Um, our staff in, in uh, a couple months ago, we did a, a fast together. And that was actually really meaningful to, to experience that together for 24 hours for us to uh, not eat. And we instead, we were texting each other encouragement. We were checking in with each other to make sure we didn't end up at Jack in the Box for some reason, you know. Um, but it was actually, it provided this sense of solidarity and community um, as we were spending the day praying studying scripture, being more intentional about being with God. Um, and so doing this with community can be a really sweet experience. So rather than show, uh, meeting up for lunch, maybe you meet up for a walk around Town Lake. You, maybe you spend some more time in prayer with each other. Maybe um, you, you're together in such a way that you usually don't do, or maybe what if you go serve together as a community in place of that meal. So we decide how we will fast, We will decide the purpose of the fast, and then we'll consider if we should invite other people into the fast. And the reason why we do this is that when we set aside time in this fast, we are redirecting our appetites, our longing, our souls to other needs that we have. So imagine how it might be meaningful to set aside the phone for 24 hours. Fasting from your phone for 24 hours because you want to be more present with other people in your home and with God. Imagine what it would be like for, uh, for a week fasting from Amazon Prime. And just thinking, can I be content with what I have? And I know it's, Christmas is coming and that's hard. But just to think, like, let me just fast from online purchasing to see, like, all right, do I have enough? And maybe you even set aside the money that you would have spent on that and you go and you serve, and you bless with generosity. Imagine spending a fast where um, you, when you hear a friend's needs of burdens, you set aside a lunch the next day, and you just want to fast. It's just this, this posture of longing that God would show up in the midst of that need. It's not just about self-denial. Fasting is actually about saying yes to something much deeper. African church father, St. Augustine, would say, the whole of the good Christian life is a holy longing. We live in a community that does not celebrate longing. 
But the uh, practice of fasting is the reminder that we could have a holy, sacred longing, a longing for God, for the nearness of Christ's kingdom to come, to experience more of God's presence. And the true question that comes to us with the emptiness in our life is, how much do I long for God? Like even if you were just just to do a, a check-in with yourself right now, like what is, what is my appetite just to know and enjoy God today? Has it been a while since you've really longed for God's presence and nearness in your life? St. Augustine would say the whole of the good Christian life is a holy longing. Regardless of your longing for Christ, I just want to end by saying that Christ longs for you. That Christ longs and hungers that you were to know him. The goodness of his presence, the joy of being with him, that, that God longs for you to experience a life with him. To actually know that God is trustworthy, that God can be trusted, that God is a good provider. And that picture of those two different towers, we might think the point of these habits are to be able to cross from here to go over there. I just want you to know that Jesus has done the lion's share of the work, that Christ has made a way for us to experience transformation, to be able to move, to be made anew in Christ, this good provider is with you and wants you to follow him. So as we finish this series on habits, may we follow Jesus together with all these practices and may the habits of Jesus mark your life and mark our church. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.